Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Geekery in General podcast. My name is Al, and joining me today is a returning guest. You might remember him from the episode we did on Star Trek, and that is Jeff from the MetaTrek YouTube channel. How are you doing today, Jeff? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. You're welcome. And um, before we start with the main topic, just wanted to make make a quick announcement. I will be at the Midwest Gaming Classic down in Milwaukee as a vendor. It's the last weekend in the month. So if you happen to be in the Milwaukee area from March 31st through April 2nd, and if you are uh, go to that convention, feel free to stop by the exhibit hall and uh, say hi. I'll be there selling some of my products. And my wife also has a bunch of 3D stuff that she's printed. So we'll have a lot of stuff for sale and hopefully you'll, even if you just want to stop by and say hi. So the Topic we're going to do today is sort of a spinoff of the Star Trek episode because one of the things we talked a little bit about there is how shows like Star Trek and Star Wars, they are examples of modern mythology. Modern mythology is interesting because I think it's take to some extent, it's taken the place of the stories that people used to tell back during ancient times. Except now, instead of telling stories about heroes fighting dragons and monsters or going into the underworld and retrieving some treasure or rescuing someone, instead we tell stories about people flying around in spaceships and blowing things up. So to start this episode, there is a brief passage I'd like to read from Encyclopedia.com and their article on modern mythology. Like all myths and legends, modern mythology springs from a sense of life's wonder, excitement, mystery, and terror. Modern legends offer images of the best and worst aspects of the human condition. They suggest that good behavior will be rewarded, and evil, greedy, or foolish behavior will be punished. Some modern legends reflect people's fear of rapid social change or of science and technology. Others appeal to their desire to find meaningful patterns beneath the confusing chaos of ordinary life. So I just thought that was a good uh, intro or uh, to set the stage for the topic we're going to talk about today. So Jeff, you had the idea to bring this topic and talk about Joseph Campbell's four functions of myth and how they relate to science fiction and how we can use this to interpret franchises like Star Wars and Star Trek. Yeah, when you start looking at science fiction as a mythology and you really want, or Star Trek or Star Wars, you really want to make sure that the mythology is fully functional. And the way that you do that would be to look at these four functions. I've done a lot of research with Star Trek in the four functions, and I find that Star Trek is fully functional as a mythology. And Star Wars has a potential. I haven't studied that as much, so I don't know the ins and outs. I did a, I did a little bit of research on it before I before we did the podcast. I couldn't find a lot on it, so it was kind of frustrating, but I think we've got enough to at least get a start with that. Mm-hmm. The four functions that are very important, all of the old mythologies, all of them had these four functions. So if uh, you want to find something that that can truly be considered a, a mythology. It has to, it has to have these qualities to it. So I wasn't really too familiar with the four functions. So it's something that I did look up before we started recording. So the four functions: there's the mystical, the cosmological, the sociological, and the peta, pedagog, the pedagogical. pedagogical. Yeah, that pedagogical. Yeah. <laughs> It's uh, kind of a funny word. The the first function, the the, uh, the mystical, is also known as the, uh, the the metaphysical function as well. It was kind of it, it's gotten two names for some reason. Joseph Campbell, of course, most people are familiar with the hero of a thousand faces, which probably going to get into talking about that just because whether you like the hero of a thousand faces and this idea of the monomyth or not, 
you can't deny it's had a huge impact in modern storytelling as well as ancient storytelling. So in brief, the hero's journey is, well, it's a monomyth. It's a universal idea that we see repeated in a lot of cultures around the world. They all have their own different interpretations of it, but most heroic myths follow a similar pattern. You've got a hero who receives a call to adventure. They might accept it right away, or they might need a little bit of encouragement. They cross the threshold to adventure, which is the point of no turning back. Along their way, they will meet mentors. They will acquire uh, magic weapons or magic items or other gifts. Usually there's a descent into the underworld. There's a battle with a dragon of some kind. Uh, Often another um, archetype we see is the ogre mother or the ogre father. The hero might have an atonement with with the mother goddess or the father god. Sometimes he's uh, the hero is killed but and then resurrected. Sometimes he needs help returning to the world of the of mortals, but eventually he returns with the boon of his quest. So, like I said, that's that's the monomyth in brief. Yep, yep, that's a pretty good encasement of it there. It's interesting. Some people, like you were saying, if you like it or not, some people uh, have issues with it because Campbell would would phrase things in such a way that it made it sound like it covered all of the bases. So it, you know, it's they either they either die or survive. They either go left or right. Now you know that he didn't use that one, but just as a kind of an example. Um, but what you'll find are the when he talks about there are two ways that something can go they're always on a dyad so they're not just generally covering everything like anything can happen so this thing covers like every contingency so it's usually at certain points one of two things are going to happen and they're often uh, based on the particulars of the story the message that's being brought through and you know, it's not uh, arbitrary. That argument against it, I think, doesn't really hold water. Well, one of the criticisms people have of Joseph Campbell's monomyth and Hero with Thousand Faces is some people say that it's so vague that it's practically meaningless. Yeah. And the fact that a lot of Hollywood movies and modern story writers usually base their work on this myth that's led them to release safe films where you almost can really kind of predict ahead what's going to happen. And it, you're making these stories that are going to be so universal that it's like, well, we've already seen them how done how many times before. Yeah. But we always seem to love it when they do it again, you know, <laughs> it speaks to something deeper within us. It's sort of the, the facade that you look through to see the deeper meanings in life. Just like the new avatar movie. You know, those are Heroes Journey 101 stories, but we still love them and they're still like, you know, the biggest uh, grossing movies of all time. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that the Hollywood tends to adhere to this is because they know this formula works. And of course, movies take a lot of money to make. So they want to make sure that after they've invested millions and millions of dollars into making this film that, you know, they get a return on that investment. Well, you know, you, you mentioned how much it costs to make movies and that it's sort of interesting that, you know, what is it about movies that, you know, these are the, some of the most expensive things that we make in the, in the world. You know, some of these movies have like the budget of, of, of a small country, hundred million dollars, $120 million. It says that there's really something going on there that, that we're willing to spend so much money on these things, you know? And then they re- they rake in billions of dollars. So, you know, it really tells you something is going on there. We're really fascinated by them. Why do you think that these movies are so popular and why, even though they do sometimes follow these formulaic storylines, we can't help but go back and watch them? Exactly for the reason that we're talking tonight. It's because they have a mythological aspect shining through and that has always fascinated humanity. These are the stories that we tell and retell 
we've told and retold forever and we'll tell and retell forever into the future. And I think you make a good point there because like, for example, creation myths, usually there's, there's four themes that you see common across the world. The first example might be like a deity just willing the universe into existence. You also see stories where the heaven and earth split apart. There's the fertilization of the primordial waters and another prominent theme, the dismemberment of the primordial giant. Creation myth is another important staple of a mythology. Every mythology has to have a creation myth. Star Trek's creation myth is, seems to be based on the steady state continuous creation theory. And this was from a actually an animated episode called The Magics of Megas 2. And in this episode, they go to the center of the galaxy and they discover newly forming uh, matter being created at the center. And the ship gets sucked in, in through a vortex into the center of the galaxy, which is probably supposed to be the, a metaphor for the center of everything. And they find this planet in there with these magical beings, kind of like archons almost. And not a fully formed creation story, but it's as close as Star Trek seems to come to a general creation story of how everything got here. As far as Star Wars goes, I'm, did any of the movies or shows touch on a creation story in Star Wars? None that I've seen. I mean, I'm sure they've talked about how, you know, like a couple, like some of the episodes of stuff outside of the movies, they probably touched a little bit on maybe what some alien races viewed as the creation. But I don't know what the specific uh, creation story behind uh, the Star Wars universe is. And I have to say, one of the things that fascinates me about if we ever do manage to make contact with alien life, and if uh, we ever do manage to find a way to communicate and translate each other's languages, honestly, one of the first things I would really be interested in is finding about how their religious beliefs, especially their creation stories, to see how much mirrors some of the stories we see on Earth. And, mm -hmm. you know, even how how did their religions develop compared to religions on Earth? I mean, have they gone through the same series where you had religions start to organize and grow larger and then split apart? Or did they have religions that managed to remain more or less the same through the years? So call me a nerd, if you will, or a geek, but yeah, that's, I find that stuff interesting. I do too. I think it, uh, interesting and mind blowing, you know, having a chance to talk with a being from another world like that would be just one of the most incredible experiences, I think. Mm -hmm. And, and also too, if you, depending on how you, view the formation of religions that would have an impact on what they would likely have as a, a religious system. Like uh, one idea is that religions really developed a, around a set of codes or rules so that people can live together. And, you know, cause if you, you can't, uh, you can't be stealing or killing or, you know, doing all that sort of thing. And if you want to live as a group, so, a lot of this is basically, you know, how do you live together, which is the uh, falls under the sociological function of mythology. It's a shared set of beliefs and rights and wrongs. Hero's journey too. People, I've heard people wonder like what the hero's journey from another world would be like, and I have a feeling it would be like ours because really, when you break it down, it's a story of going from the familiar to the unfamiliar, discovering something and then coming back, which is really the thing you do every day when you leave your house and you come home at night, you know, you have a daily hero's journey that you go on. So it's, you would think that no matter where you are, you would have that same three-step process of being here, going there, and then coming back to here again. So, and also too, another thing about religion and mythology, all of this, and this is a Jungian idea, that mythology was a primitive form of psychology. By primitive, not being a simple form, but just being a, an earlier form of psychology. And so what that also tells you is that all of this comes from the psyche, all, the human psyche. And that could be one reason why there's a monomyth and one reason why there's a collective unconscious, because we're all human and we all have 
the same basic elements of our mind and you know the the unconscious and the all the aspects of that would be commonly shared throughout humanity so we would have we would tell stories about that in which mythologies and heroes journeys are really just stories that about us going into our own psyche and then coming back with some hidden gem of knowledge that's been lost for thousands of years or maybe never uncovered before. And that would go more into the pedagogical function with, you know, how to, you know, how to live. And um, we'll, we'll get to that. Of course, uh, later, let's, why don't we go sure. to the first two functions? We've already All talked right. about the, uh, a little bit about the, this, the third and fourth. So we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so to, so let's start with the first one, the mystical. So this is the way I've heard it described is opening the heart and mind and learning to experience the the awe and wonder of the universe. Yep. Yep. And that for in I think in Star Wars, I think the force is a a good example of the mystical or metaphysical function that is the mysterious aspect of of Star Wars that permeates everything and Star Trek. What I've discovered is that it seems to focus more on the other half of the mystical function, which would be dealing with the, with the horror of life. Well, what that comes through as and what Campbell talked about a lot was um, the horror of having to continually kill other things in order to live. And that's, exemplified in, in an episode called Wolf in the Fold, where Spock states that we all feed on death, even vegetarians. And that speaks right to the heart of this aspect of the, of the mystical uh, function. In Star Trek, we were talking a little bit earlier, I think before we started, about technology and how people don't trust it. And it's, you know, in a lot of science fiction is, you know, cautionary tales against too much technology or technology developing too quickly or getting out of hand, which is a very understandable concern. Star Trek even touches on that as well with like Star Trek, the motion picture with V'ger and Star Trek uh, original series episode called the changeling with nomad. Those were both examples of our technology coming back and trying to wipe us out. Basically. Whenever I see a video of like some, new robot that has very human-like movements. And I'm not sure if some of these are genuine videos or if it's just a fake video someone put together. But whenever I see those videos, I'm like, haven't these people seen a Terminator movie? <laughs> yeah, it seems like we're head we're headlong right into that, aren't we? In Star Trek, they one of the things uh, that's sort of unique about it is that they look at technology as being a kind of our salvation as well mm -hmm. and that uh, they've turned earth back into a paradise and a utopia of sorts. And one of the interesting things and one of the ways they get over or get past this, um, the horror aspect of life where we have to kill to survive is that they have the, they have food replicators. So in an episode of the next generation, commander Riker's an episode called lonely among us, I think it is. He talks about how we no longer have to kill our food, that the pro these replicators form it out of non-organic material. So we've sort of solved that problem of feeding on death. The other uh, aspect of it, the awe of life. In Star Trek, you can use Spock as an example of a, of a guide for that uh, because he, and this might sound familiar to you, I know you're not a, a big Star Trek fan, but you've probably heard Spock say, fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or interesting. So he is in a constant state of fascination. And I think that's a good role model for us to go by, you know, the all of life and to be constantly fascinated by the world or at least interested, which is like a mild form of fascination. Now with Spock, do you think maybe he, one of the reasons he took that is that approach is because at least looking at the original series, he was the only non-human on the crew. Cause I know in um, like in some of the later series, they started to bring Klingons and s some other races on the crew of the, the spaceship. But I, I just remember from the original series, Spock was the only non-human there. So 
he's like the outsider in, of the group in a way. Yeah. In a way, originally he was meant to be really the guide of the group as well. He was sort of like Tonto to um, the, the Lone the Ranger, Ranger yeah. or the Grizzly Adams. He had like a Native American blood brother that was sort of his guide to the wilderness. So uh, Spock was supposed to be sort of like the native guide to in outer space, showing them the, the terrain. And I, th- I think that take looking at Spock from another perspective, the reason he took his position on board the enterprise was because of his fascination with the world and the universe. And that was his best way of getting out there and experiencing all of these things. If you watch the series, what, when the stories focus on Spock, what they what they really focus on is mainly him having these incredible experiences through different forms of telepathy or exposure to alien influences. But this really seems to be what his focus was on was just having these experiences and gaining this knowledge. And he, he talked a lot about that, about the knowledge that poured through that mind meld was staggering or, you know, to look at things more from the star Wars perspective, I, I think the force really is a good parallel there because it's supposed to be this this life force found in all living things that binds everything together, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think some people were a little peeved when they introduced the idea of the midichlorians in, the, in Phantom Menace. I was which, one of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I didn't really, it didn't really bother me as much. I mean, I'm a Star Wars fan, but I'm not a super hardcore Star Wars fan. It's funny. One of my friends always like to say that no one hates Star Wars more than the Star Wars fans do. <laughs> but I, you know, I guess because one, of, and I think this is one of the in-universe explanations, which actually does make sense, is that a high midichlorian count is supposed to be actually a sign of the Force. It's just for whatever reason, it manages to manifest itself in certain people, and hence why they have these higher midichlorian counts. And that's actually one theory as to how Anakin Skywalker became weaker in the Force when he became Darth Vader, because midichlorians require an organic body. And with you know Darth Vader, while well, he had his limbs cut off and his you know the inside of his you know his insides were heavily damaged, so he was nowhere near as powerful as he could have been. Now, of course, he was still very powerful, mm-hmm. but he's nowhere near as powerful as he could have been had he not had his, his limbs cut off and had his body burnt like it was. I didn't know about that aspect of it. Um, one of the things that I had a problem with the midichlorians was just that it was almost like it was a, he was trying to give a scientific explanation for a mystical thing that, you know, it's almost like talking about atoms and, or viruses or, you know, something sciencey where it, it sort of took the mystery out of it, actually. That is mystery. true. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like with Dungeons and Dragons, you know, no one, you really don't try to find a scientific explanation for why a wizard can cast magic missile or why a wizard can cast fireball. He just does it and boom. Yep. Yep. And plus Star Wars was never really terribly concerned about science. It really, I think, is more science fantasy than science fiction uh in that respect it um you know their ships they didn't it wasn't a concern you could take an x-wing fighter from one solar system to another maybe fans have come up with explanations for how they power these you know little ships and how they can get them vast distances like that but it never was as science-based it was always more uh just about you know more of a magical kind of thing i felt and I agree with you on that uh, from based on what little I know about Star Trek, because they didn't really have as much of the mystical aspects in there. I think you said that Spock had some sort of like telepathy he used, but I mean, I don't think recall seeing much of like people moving around stuff with their mind. Whereas in Star Wars, um, at least in the stuff where there's Jedi people being able to do all these semi-magical feats is just par for the course. Yeah. yeah. And there was uh, more mysticism in, in Star Trek than I think a lot of people realize. And that 
some people are willing to admit there's a book called Star Trek and Metaphysics where the author of the book emphatically declares that any hint in Star Trek of a metaphysical world or souls or anything like that can be explained scientifically, every single one of them. And I emphatically disagree with them on that. There are a number of examples where Star Trek indicates that there's some sort of a non-corporeal soul. There's, so you have aliens that are non-corporeal. So they're like a cloud or, or an energy field or something like that. Now, some of those are just weird alien things, but there are a couple examples where it's stated that these were humanoids that evolved into this sort of non-corporeal state. So there are a couple episodes where they indicate that humans have a soul or something more to us than just a mind and a body. And it really does go into that a little, you know, more than I think people realize. And like Star Wars, the science in Star Trek isn't all that sciencey. If you really pay attention to it, they don't have a lot of science in it. And when they do, a lot of it isn't very accurate. You know? Yeah, because I think the term that some people use are, is hard sci-fi versus soft sci-fi, where yeah. something like Firefly would be hard science fiction because there's not really a, a scientific... There, there's not really some super futuristic device that can solve everything. Whereas Star Wars is definitely more soft science fiction. And at least what I know about Star Trek, it would probably be somewhere in that middle ground between hard and soft sci-fi. Um, yeah. So now when you talk about like these spiritual beings, where does the Q continuum fit into all this? So they're somewhat of a mystery, and they exist apparently in uh, some other dimension that they can interact in our dimension. There's a, the Q continuum, and Q claims that it's some kind of uh, greater reality or something like that that they exist in. He's, he talks to Riker in an episode called Hide and Q, and Riker asks him a couple of questions, and he says, well, I can't, I can't explain the true nature of the universe to you, like, you know, off the cuff, you know, so you kind of avoids the question, but they are apparently a godlike species that seem to be both non-corporeal and physical, but they can interchange at will, I think, between the two. You know, that almost sounds Lovecraftian in a way, because I don't know if this was a quote that Lovecraft said himself, or if this was, I think it was actually in one of his stories, but there was a quote that perhaps the most merciful thing about the universe is that we can't understand it. And I think he was trying to imply that in his fiction, that if we really understood the true nature of things that we, our minds wouldn't be able to handle it. And we just snap and go insane. I think so. Yeah. I think the true nature of the universe evades us the way that our world in the sort of the world that exists between us humans evades our pets. You know, they live in the world with us, but they don't understand politics or religion or even mathematics. You know, all of that is just sort of a layer, a level beyond them. And I think that the true nature of the universe is something like that to us. It's a level beyond us that we can't understand. And it would probably be overwhelming if we were to experience it. So speaking of the, the, the universe, this actually segues nicely into the second function, the cosmological, which I've always found cosmology fascinating, uh, not just as a Dungeons and Dragons fan with the, you know, the, the plane, outer planes, the inner planes, but just how different religions and came up with these different ideas to explain not how the, the universe came into existence, but also the physical structure of it. And I've heard that some people say that, well, with when you're taking a look at mythology, to some extent, this function has been taken over by science. Because, yep, because thanks to these high-tech telescopes that we have and improving scientific devices, we are now finally able to start getting a better understanding of 
what's beyond the solar system. You know, whereas like, you know, a few hundred, like a hundred or so years ago, you know, our telescopes, yeah, they could see a galaxy, but we weren't really able to make out a lot of detail. And, you know, now it's like, you look at some of the stuff from like the, I think it's the James Webb telescope and, you know, even just the Hubble, it's Mm -hmm. like, wow, you get these really clear, you know, super clear images. Yeah, they can be really be awe-inspiring. And in that respect, the secular science really has taken over that aspect of, uh, you know, the for that function for us. And even science has developed its own creation story with the Big Bang. And, you know, I look at that as just, you know, another example of a creation story. And in, I think with things like Star Wars and Star Trek, the way that they have sort of gotten a handle on this aspect of mythology is really with the special effects, the same same idea as the Hubble telescope or the James Webb, the awe and spectacle of the science fiction movies gives us that feeling of awe. And uh, think about the first scene in the first Star Wars movie with that ship going overhead and then the, you know, the blockade runner and then the star destroyer that just gave you a sense of all right there. Oh yeah. And especially when you look at just how the, in star Wars, just how the space battles go. I mean, you look at the battle of Yavin four in the first one, and then you look at the, you know, some of the big space fights in the prequel trilogy and the sequel trilogy. Now, of course we're talking about different levels of effects where, the original trilogy, they just had models and now it's, it's all CGI. Right. Yeah. And they really, you know, it was really thanks to star Wars that all of that technology got pushed forward. You know, Um, George Lucas really innovated a lot of things and he did things when other people would just talking about doing it. He was out there doing it, even making the, the prequel trilogy, you know, filming that completely on digital cameras, you know, that, I think that was like the first time that was done and, you know, people thought he was nuts to do it, but he, he was determined to push all that technology forward. And the original Star Trek series, you know, the special effects were kind of far and few between. They reused a lot of the same shots of the enterprise from week to week and would have some novel special effects, usually at least a couple per episode, but, they were not, you know, they, some of them were, where they were all probably all inspiring for the time. Then when you get into the movies, especially like Star Trek, the motion picture, if you want to see an awe inspiring movie, check that out. Especially the ending of it is some of the most beautiful special effects ever and the creation of a new life form. And it has yeah, a, that's actually one of the few parts I do remember of the original motion picture when they're going into that nebula and they meet, uh, V'ger, which we find out is actually, you know, the Voyager spacecraft. So, yeah, yeah, that's pretty neat. And this also too is a, you know, I already, we already talked about the uh, creation story, but the cosmological function is where the cr- the creation story fits into the four functions. Fortunately, I'm not sure if there's a specific, if there's like a canon uh, creation story for Star Wars. I know you mentioned it sounds like they tried to develop something like that for Star Trek. Does that have, because I remember there was what, the Voyage Home where they went in, or no, Star Trek V, uh, where they, wasn't that the one where they met some guy in the center of the universe who claimed to be God or something like that? Or Yeah, they go back to the center of the galaxy again and go through the Great Barrier, uh, which they seem to indicate was there in the animated episode as well. So there's this great barrier that um, sort of protects the center of the galaxy. And then there's also one that protects the outside of the galaxy in the first or actually the second pilot of the original series. They go to, to the great barrier at the edge of the galaxy. It's an energy barrier. And that turns one of the crew members or two of them actually into godlike beings that have telekinetic powers and they become well the one gary mitchell he becomes rather amoral and 
has to be destroyed. And so that's an example of, uh, of the sociological function when, you know, of right and wrong, good and bad. And what happens when you act badly, you know, your society will, uh, either kick you out or kill you, you know? Yeah. (laughs) That actually goes back to the quote I mentioned at the beginning, where one of the things, not just a modern mythology, but you think about it also ancient mythology where, you know, we always have this idea that we want to think that, bad deeds and people who do bad things will always get what's coming to them. And, you know, people who do try to be good people will, you know, they'll get their rewards as well. Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting. The first pilot of Star Trek called the cage, there's actually a line in there that sounds a lot like what you quoted from that article where the Telosians tell captain Pike, they tell him wrong thinking will be punished and right thinking will be as quickly rewarded. And they're trying to train him to be what they want, you know, what they want him to be. As far as Star Wars goes, I think the Jedi Order would be a good example of a sociological function because they have a code of of behavior. And you were saying, too, earlier, like the Sith, they have their code as well. Then they also have their their various hierarchy with most people know with, like, for example, the Jedi, you start as a youngling. And then you go to become a, you know, a Padawan and then a Jedi Knight. And then if you survive long enough, you know, a Jedi Master and then there's the High Council. So you've got that, you know, certain hierarchy there. And one of the things that uh, occasionally you'll see people, they put forth their fan theories about how the Jedi are really the bad guys. And because they take they take these four sensitive children from their homes And when they're really young and the, there was one video, I think it's the stupendous wave. Uh, He does a lot of star Wars uh, videos where he talks about stuff in the, the movies and stuff in the comics. And he actually did a video addressing this topic where a lot of first it is voluntary. So if a parent doesn't want to give up their child to the Jedi order, they don't have to. And not only that, a lot of the cultures in the galaxy considered it an honor to have a child that would go to become a Jedi. And in some ways, really, the becoming a Jedi does mirror the hero's journey because your call is, well, you're basically just Force-sensitive, so it it's like the Force chooses you, and then you go on your own road of trials as you go through your training as a youngling and then you become a Padawan. And if you're able to pass the trials, uh, cause in Jedi lore, there's, there are divisions of the Jedi order for people who weren't Jedi or who didn't pass the trials. There was like a medical division. So these were ones that were specialized in using their force powers to heal. There was an exploratory division. And I think there was also a, like a diplomatic or division as well. So if a Jedi did fail their trials, they weren't just cast out. They were still given a a role and a way to find, you know, to be useful and to contribute to the Republic. There's probably something like some of the monasteries in, uh, over in Eastern Asia, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, I think of, uh, the, that show um, Kung Fu. You ever see okay, that? Yeah. The, the, the Shaolin show. monasteries. Yeah. There you go. Yep. And I think they took in boys that were young and kept them until they were in their late teens, early twenties. And, you know, so I think it's the same kind of an idea as the, uh, the Jedi order taking the children in. Yeah. Cause the, the, again, the reason they took it is because one of the things that's forbidden in the Jedi code or in Jedi, not it's not necessarily in the Jedi code itself, but rather just the uh, Jedi ethics is attachment. And George Lucas has even addressed this because there's people who think Jedi have to be celibate. And it's like, no, they don't have to be celibate. It's just relationships and attachment. That's the only thing that's forbidden to them. And we see this with Anakin, how... 
his attachment to his mother, how he can't fully break those bonds in the end is one of the things that helps lead him towards uh, the dark side. Cause we see in revenge, not revenge of the Sith um, attack, attack of, of the, the clones. clones. Yeah. How he goes back to Tatooine and he finds out what happens to his mom and he slaughters an entire tribe of the, of Tuscan Raiders yeah. And we could even see that actually in Revenge of the Sith because he's having these visions about Padme dying. And he does, since he doesn't want to lose her, he doesn't know what to do. He talks to Yoda. He doesn't specifically tell her that, hey, I, I married a senator and got her pregnant. <laughs> but he was just telling him how he had visions of a, of a friend dying. And he, Yoda was trying to tell him that, you know, it's not to be feared. You know, you should celebrate their life but he can't he can't bring himself to that level of emotional attachment with padme and ultimately that's something that palpatine is able to use to again further anakin's turn to the dark side one of the things i liked about uh was it christian hayden was that his name yes yeah was his ability to get that look on his face like that he's checked out you know (laughs) um, like when he kills the uh, Tusken Raiders. I I was wondering if that might've been one of the reasons why Lucas uh, hired him for the part, because he just had that like psycho look (laughs) in his eyes. So yeah, I I think he wasn't, he wasn't all altogether there emotionally, you know, to begin with. He, uh, he had issues that they probably should have realized before they put him through the training that they did. I was going to say for star, star Trek and the sociological function, one of the prime examples is the prime directive. Uh, that is a, well, it's their first order not to interfere with other worlds, which is a metaphor, I think, for how we should behave here on earth. You know, don't mess around with other cultures, you know, leave, leave them alone, which is the, the, main, the main message there. The thing about Star Trek is that it came out right in tandem with us really taking our first steps into space like a really is like a new age for, for mankind. And we have a mythology that's right there on the cutting edge along with mankind going into space and trying to set down a set of rules, you know, and, and, and examples of how to behave when we get out there, you know, and along a similar lines, we have actually taken that a step further where there is an international treaty not to weaponize space and that they've decided no one, you know, no one's going to own the moon. And of course that also brings up the question because there's a, you know, talk of sending people to Mars someday. Okay. Does that mean if, if the first country that can get someone to Mars, you know, do they, do they really have the legal right to claim ownership of it? They can probably stick out a claim on Mars. It's a pretty big place. Yeah. <laughs> so they, you know, I suppose we could land on one one side of it, and the Russians can land on the other side, and it would, uh, you know, never the uh, never the twain shall meet. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there are have even been treaties about weaponizing space. How there's a treaty to not put space based weapons in orbit. Though with like science fiction, though, one of the things they usually explore is the ethics of this changing technology, whether it's, I mean, you could actually go back to like Isaac Asimov with his three laws of robotics, Mm -hmm. which is something to really think about now that we are starting to see the field of robotics start to really advance. You know, can we program some equivalent into these robots course we're also talking about ai and how there's you know ai created art and someone even wrote a ai generated story so it's almost like are we making our the means to our own destruction we could be but on the other hand it seems like we should have some control over how this stuff behaves you know we we don't want it to uh you know destroy the world and don't give it feelings or you know don't don't program it with anger, you know, Mm -hmm. but I suppose there's an argument that these things could be like an emergent property too. Once an AI 
reaches a certain level of sophistication or development that it would uh, somehow maybe take on these aspects that we didn't necessarily give to it to begin with. But though for something to be destructive or, you know, to, to act human, you know, it has to be sort of embodied like a human, I would think. And a lot of the stuff that drives us and makes us do bad things are like hormonal. And there's all these chemical interactions going on inside our bodies that have a lot to do with how we behave or misbehave and robots until we, at least until we make some kind of a synthetic organic creature wouldn't have that aspect to them. So I don't know if they would behave badly like we do if we didn't program them to do that. To draw upon another sci-fi series, the matrix, because you think about it, once a robot becomes intelligent enough where it can make its own decisions, well, then that brings up the point, are they going to be considered citizens or not? And what kind of social rights are they given? Right. A good example would be, have you ever seen the Animatrix? Yeah. Oh, what was it called? The Second Renaissance, I think. It's the one where they explain more. They go into more of the story about how the world of the Matrix came to be. Oh, yeah. And one of the turning points is there was a robot that killed a person because he was threatening to be deactivated. And the robot, he didn't, he said he didn't want to die. So he was acting in self-defense. So again, that brings up a whole new thing is like, okay, well, what if we do get AI to that point, are they subject to the same punishments that people are and the same rights that we are? That's a really good point. And uh, one that science fiction strives to answer, I think, and that is, what does it mean to be human? And the question originally was, if you look like me, then you're human. And that's how we were able to dehumanize like other other um, races of man was to say, well, they don't look like us. So they had, they're, they're subhuman or something. And we've been able to, I think, encompass all of humanity in this like brotherhood of man. But in science fiction, the further afield you go, you start to find creatures that look less and less human until you've got things that are completely non-human. And how do you treat them? And I think the answer is if they think like us or the equivalent to us, then they're human. So if these robots become sophisticated enough that they want to be emancipated and they have every attribute that we do and every indication that they are like us, then we should treat them like us. And that's what science fiction, I think, teaches us to do. And I think with Star Wars, there is a certain parallel when we talk about what it means to be human. You look at the clones. I mean, I'm not sure in the Star Wars canon how they were always treated, but when it came near after the Clone Wars ended, uh, there was a clip I saw from the Bad Batch when Palpatine was talking about sunsetting the clone army, how they will follow unethical orders without any question. So are they really any better than robots? But you do see that clones do start to become more than just war machines. Mm-hmm. I know there was a couple in like the star Wars rebel series that were like that, where they did actually resist their programming during order 66. And they, cause they found out they had the inhibitor chips and they had those removed. So they truly had free will. And so some of the uh, the Jedi survived because of that. Uh, yes, the in Star Wars Rebels, uh, Ahsoka Tano, um, she survives because the one of the main clones, Captain Rex, uh, ends up helping her. And he was about to shoot her, but you could see he was resisting because he didn't want to do it. Interesting. Yeah, and they went beyond the limits of their programming. I guess you could say. So this brings us to the last part. The pedagogical. So this is, again, the how to live your life and the teaching function. There was a YouTube video I watched before when I was getting ready to record this, where the person was mentioning that one of the things that would fall under this particular function are the stages of life, such as birth, 
coming of age, maturity, when you finally reach adulthood, you know, marriage, uh, you know, you go on to have your own children, old age, and then death, because these are universal themes. Doesn't matter where you live on the planet, your culture does have these cycles and they're they're celebrated or they're commemorated in different ways. We're probably one of the few uh, cultures in human history that has uh, done away with some of, probably not all of these, but definitely some of them. So we, we have a hard time figuring out when we're actually truly men and women, you know, and this, uh, this function is the foundation of the other three. Everything is built on top of the pedagogical for that same reason that you were saying that this goes through the stages of life. This is the, um, the universal function like this one in the first one, the, the mystical, uh, metaphysical one stay pretty consistent. The, the two in the middle, the cosmological and sociological functions, those can vary wildly from culture to culture and from time to time. And, but the pedagogical is the foundation of everything. And and it's also about going from dependency to independence. And in Star Trek, Captain Kirk is a prime example of of a true man who's independent. You know, he's the captain of a ship away from the what they would call the father social, which in his case would be Starfleet Command or uh, the Federation Council. He's out on his own autonomous and able to make decisions for himself and for those under him. I think in, in star Wars, I think Luke Skywalker might make a good example of the pedagogical function, how he develops from a farm boy who's dependent on his aunt and uncle to becoming an independent Jedi master to whatever he was in the last Jedi. I'm not sure like how you fit that in there, or if you even should try. It is interesting the way they decided to move him, you know, because of course there's the legends, the stuff that's non-canon now, and then the the Disney canon where in the legends material, he did eventually go on to get married, and I believe he did have kids, where in the canon, well, he pretty much became that, you know, that old, he, he was almost like he became a new version of Obi-Wan where he was becoming this teacher to the, these next generation of Jedi, which unfortunately, you know, Kylo Ren ended up putting into that, you know, even after becoming one with the force, he still acts as somewhat as of a guide um, to, you know, to the other characters. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like you mentioned Obi-Wan, he might be an example of uh, somebody in the later stages of life preparing for death. Because that's the idea. I think uh, it was either Campbell or Jung talked about the two stages of life and how the first half of life is geared towards becoming and living and, you know, becoming what you will become. And then the second half of life is geared towards fading off into death and, you know, accepting that eventual outcome and going through those uh, stages of preparation for that. And that could be like the next great hero's journey, you know, is uh, what's on the other side of death's door. That is true. And I know the there's the Obi-Wan series, which again, I've only seen clips on YouTube. Uh, We haven't subscribed to Disney plus yet. So I haven't had a chance to really, uh, you know, watch any full episodes, but I, I think that would be Obi-Wan's journey into, you know, as you said, preparing himself for death because he's witnessed a lot in Phantom Menace. He saw his master Qui-Gon get killed by Darth Maul. And then, you know, of course the, the clone wars, Eventually, he has to fight and severely injure, you know, his student who was like a brother to him. And then Order 66, and he finds out about how, uh, you know, Anakin killed children and how all these friends and people he knew were now dead because Palpatine wanted to get rid of the Jedi so they wouldn't interfere with his plans. 
Yeah. Yeah, he had really been through a lot. And then finally facing his old student again the last time, found out something interesting about that. Apparently in the, right up till like the last draft of Star Wars, when they were writing it, Obi-Wan survives his encounter with Darth Vader, but they didn't have him doing much in the end. And it was actually Luke, uh, Lucas's wife who suggested that they just kill him off. It'd be a much more powerful event. And because of that, they decided to go ahead and have him die at the hands of Darth Vader. With Star Wars, when we talk about like with the Jedi code and the, you know, the teachings, and this might actually go maybe even back more into the mystical and the sociological, but in Star Wars lore, there's the Jedi code and the Sith code with the Jedi code being, there is no emotion. There is peace. There is no ignorance. There is knowledge. There is no passion. There is serenity. There is no chaos. There is harmony. There is no death. There is the force. And then we compare that to the Sith code. Peace is a lie. There is only passion. Through passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Through power, I gain victory. Through victory, my chains are broken the force shall set me free. So where hmm. the Jedi view the, the, the force as a means to achieve peace with the Sith, it's more all about power and control. Right. That's interesting. I like that. Um, and also too, I was going to mention earlier, um, the saying, may the force be with you. Apparently that came from Lucas wanting to say something like, uh, may the Lord be with you, but didn't want to use that. So he, he took that saying and took out the Lord and put the force in there. And so I didn't think of, think about it again until you mentioned uh, that last line of the Sith code, where it was to say. Um, the force shall set me free. Yeah, exactly. So that's a, uh, a take on another biblical verse. Um, the truth shall set you free. Mm-hmm. Now with... The Star Trek series, did they ever touch much upon the afterlife? Not directly. They do have like Spock coming back to life. So he has sort of an afterlife, I guess, but they don't have a, um, like a heaven or a hell that you can go to in that sense of an afterlife. And they, I know they were toying with after they killed Spock off and they were going to bring him back if they should bring him back kind of like a, um, a ghost like Obi-Wan, but they decided to bring him back bodily, which I think was probably a better idea. And so they don't really touch on an afterlife, but they do get the idea that we can become non-corporeal in, in a sense. So, but you stay in the physical world. I think that goes along with the science aspect of their cosmology because like in our modern world view you know this idea of uh like christ ascending into heaven you know these ascensions of people and all that we can't quite take them as being them going up into a heaven that uh, because we kind of know what lies above the clouds and the sky we have to sort of take it i think in a different direction and uh, i think that's what star uh star trek does and also too you know talking about mythologies the idea used to be that the gods were up in heaven. Even the the Greek gods were up on Mount Olympus, which is a, like a form of a, like a heavenly realm. And now in Star Trek, which is very humanistic, now it's men themselves are walking amongst the stars, you know, mm. like sort of like we are the gods up in the heavens and having godlike powers. I think that's, I guess, maybe – in lieu of an afterlife, we've got things like that in Star uh, Star Trek. The reason I brought that up is because there was another YouTube video I watched a while ago, which was talking about how Sith and Jedi viewed the afterlife, where apparently it's the same place, but what happens there, the Jedi perceive it as heaven, whereas the Sith would actually more perceive it as hell. Mm. And that's this idea that you become one with everything which with the jedi since they're used to thinking collectively and they're guided by compassion 
and a sense of concern for others, being able to connect with everything would be a peaceful state to them. But with the Sith, and this is one of the reasons why they're always trying to find ways to extend their mortal life, with the Sith, though, because they tend to be more individualistic and tend to look out more for themselves, this idea of losing your individuality to them would be considered hell, even though they would be in the same place as a Jedi. And unfortunately, I don't remember if the person said that was canon or if it was considered part of Legends, but... I just thought that was an interesting perspective because I think it helps explain why you have Palpatine who tries to bring himself back, um, which he does in the last in Rise of Skywalker and in the Legends series. He actually does have this way where he tr- he has clones already uh, made for him that represent what he looked like in his younger life. And he does have a way to actually transfer his consciousness into these clones. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's really fascinating. I like the idea of the Sith and the Jedi basically going to the same place, but perceiving it and experiencing it differently. That is an interesting idea how the afterlife is, you know, if it, it is what you make of it, where if you if you think that, you know, if you go to what would be considered heaven, if you think it's going to be people sitting on clouds playing harps and that's what it'll get. But if your idea of heaven is maybe just a campsite with a campfire and a tent in the woods, well, that's what you're going to get. Yeah. Whatever it is, I would hate to think of how God awful boring it would get after the first trillion years or (laughs) you're (laughs) going to be there for eternity. It's uh... guess the way I see it is either something happens to us after we die or nothing happens. And honestly, I'm not sure which one is more terrifying. Right. I used to find some solace in the idea that the uh, if there is nothing after we die, it'll be a, a nothing is so profound that we have never experienced anything like it in this life. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, so that itself was a little bit of solace, but as I've gotten older, I've um, and I don't think it's because I've gotten closer to death. I think I've gotten a maybe a broader perspective on this idea. I used to be in you know atheistic and not believing in anything after death, mostly because I couldn't think of an evolutionary f- function for it. You know, like uh, ev- you know, nature seems to be concerned with us from birth to reproduction, and then f- depending on the species, however long you need to be around to reproduce, you know, to, to rear the next generation. And after that, you're on your own. And uh, an afterlife just didn't fit into that at all. But talking about like emergent properties, and once you get to a certain complexity, things can happen that weren't, uh, may, may not have been able to happen at a lower, you know, level of sophistication. I think the whole question of an afterlife would have been, or even the question of life itself would have been, something unimaginable prior to it happening, you know, prior to us becoming, you know, like matter becoming an, you know, animated somehow. And so the fact that we got to that point from inanimate material tells us that there could be another step afterwards. Have you heard of the, the Hegel triad by any chance? So I have not. So so it, it has a three steps, uh, three stages, which is the uh, thesis, antithesis, and then a synthesis stage. And I used the Hegel triad to kind of come up with a, I tried to come up with a scientific formula that I could fall back on to say, yeah, I think that this could be an explanation or could give some insight into there being an afterlife where you have your, well, first I thought before I came up with, before I went to the triad, I thought about how, everything is dyadic in this world. You know, we were even talking earlier about in the hero's journey, if something's going to happen, it's going to happen on a dyad, you know, um, two things that are sort of opposite. I thought, you know, everything is dyadic or bipolar or um, dualistic, everything. And I thought, why should life be the only thing that isn't? Being that uh, this would be the the one half of life and then uh, the other half would, you know, would be after death. You know that there should be a second half to life, or a second, a second stage, or something. Then I realized, well, 
there there were two stages. You were in a state of non-existence and then in a state of existence. So there there are your two sides. You exist. You didn't exist, and then you did. But then it still doesn't answer the third stage, which is going back into a state of non-existence. That's where the triad comes in, because what the triad states is that you have a, a thesis state. So let's say that was the state of non-existence, and in, which would make being alive sort of an antithesis state. Uh, so this is sort of the the unusual opposite of how things generally are. You're generally in a state of non-existence. You come into a state of existence, but then you can't go back to the same state of non-existence because of the fact that you've existed. This hmm. changes things. So you can't you can't be in a state of non-existence. Well, well, the reason for that is because the the third stage is a synthesis stage, which is that they is a the best part of both of the first two stages, the non-existence that you would experience after life can't be the same as the non-existence that you experienced before because you've been alive. We started talking about science fiction and then got into philosophies and speculating about the the, the meaning of the afterlife. So I've <laughs> <laughs> been all over the place. Good, yep. I think this is a good place to end this episode. So before we sign off, why don't you remind the audience where they can find your show and how they can contact you through social media? Yeah, sure. Thank you. I have a YouTube channel called Metatrek, and you can find that at youtube.com slash Metatrek and, or at Metatrek. And I'm also on Instagram it's at Metatrek videos and also on Patreon. If you'd like to become a supporter, that would be awesome. And it's also Metatrek at Patreon. Well, with that said, we hope you found uh, this show interesting and, you know, certainly went a bit longer than the average episode. But, you know, sometimes it's kind of fun to have these, you know, in-depth conversations. So thanks again for listening, everyone, and have a great day. You live long and prosper. <laughs> and may the force be with you. <laughs> You have been listening to a presentation of Point of Insanity Game Studio. Visit us on the web at poigamestudio.com. Follow us on Twitter at poigamestudio. Look us up on Facebook and email us at poigamestudio at gmail.com.